Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. All right, good morning. Good morning, Justin. It's good to be here this morning. So when I was growing up as a child, um, we did not get to go out to eat a whole lot. Um, Now, maybe that was your childhood as well. Um, But the reason why we didn't go out to eat a lot was not because uh, we didn't have the, sometimes it's because we didn't have the money for it. But more than that, it was because mom hated going and spending money on expensive food. And so we rarely ate out at the nice places. And by nice places, I mean like Applebee's and Olive Garden and Lone Star, you know, the really nice places. Um, We would rarely go there because she just hated how much she'd have to spend on a meal for a family of four um, at one of those places. And she loved it even more when you would get up and go to the bathroom before the meal was over. Um, And she would say, come on, we haven't even paid for it, and you're already flushing it down the drain? (laughs) She saw this to be an incredible waste of finances, an incredible waste of of good food, and so that's why we didn't go out to eat as a family a whole lot to the nice restaurants. We would go to McDonald's, but we would not go to the nice restaurants because we'd end up flushing it away, and she just felt like we were flushing money down the drain. And there's something that my mom really felt inside of her that I think is true and something that we've all felt inside our own hearts. And that is that this world is passing away. This world is fleeting. Um, That this meal that was here to satisfy has already gone to the sewer before we've even left the restaurant. And when we think about food, especially the idea of food, we understand that this world is very fleeting because... Today, you're going to probably eat at least two to three meals because the meal that you ate before has not been able to satisfy throughout the entire day. You're going to eat breakfast, and then after the service, that breakfast has been fleeting, and you're not going to uh, look back and be like, well, I ate breakfast. That should be good enough. You're going to say, no, my, my stomach's calling out food, need more food, and so we're going to ingest more food. And when you think about food and the reality of food, Um, we begin to see the futileness of life even greater because everything that you eat was once living, whether it was an animal or a plant. That thing that you eat, the thing that you consume, began its life as a seed or as conception, and then it grew into a plant or into an animal, and then it was either butchered or it was either uprooted, and then it was served on your plate, and then it passes through your body, and it ends up in the sewer. And if you think about it, that's kind of depressing because it takes an entire lifetime and then it takes like 24 hours to pass through your body. And even before that 24 hours is up, you are reaching for even more dead stuff to keep you alive. And that's the world that we live in. The life on this earth is kind of defined by this idea that something else has to die. Something else has to be uprooted if we are going to continue to live, if we are going to continue to bring life, something must die for life to continue. And so this morning, we're going to continue in our series in 1 John, and we're going to look at the wisdom that 1 John has to give us as how to live a life in a world that feels so fleeting, in a world that feels so temporary. John is going to give us some clues as to what remains permanent, what is going to last forever 
and also some clues at some of the things that are going to pass away. And hopefully, in exploring First John this morning, we will be compelled to invest our lives in the things that are here to stay and the things that are here to last forever, and that we would stop investing our time and our energy and our resources in the things that will pass away and end up in the sewer, like our food, moments after we've eaten it. So, um, would you read with me this morning from First John chapter 2, 15 through 17? It says this, it says, Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let us pray this morning. Dear Lord God, I just thank you for this day, and I thank you for this passage from 1 John. I thank you for the hope that it provides, that in this life of futility, in this life that feels like that is constantly passing away, that you promise a thing that is going to last forever. You promise that abiding in you, that we will know the joy of eternal life. God, I just pray this morning that you would give us wisdom, that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see where we constantly turn to the flesh to find our source of identity, our source of security, our source of fulfillment. And God, convict us to move to you, to where you are the true source of life, the true source of identity. God, may you move greatly within this room this morning. May you convict our hearts and may you turn us back to you as we go out the door this morning. In your name we pray, amen. And so in First John here, God, not God, but John, God through John kind of tells us not to love the world. Now that is kind of obscure um, because there's a lot to love about the world. Like if you've ever gone out west, it is incredibly beautiful and it's incredibly gorgeous. Or if you sat on a sandy beach and you've seen the ocean come in, it is incredibly gorgeous and incredibly Beautiful, and you're like, I'm not supposed to love that? And so we need to understand what John means by the world. And the, the best way to do that, I think, is to start by saying what John is not talking about. And the first thing that John is not talking about when he tells us to love the world is that he's not talking about the physical, natural elements of this world. He's not talking about that. He's saying you can love the mountains, you can love the forests, you can love the oceans coming crashing in. God made the world and he said that it was good. But all too often we read passages like this in First John and we say the world is passing away and we use this passage um, almost as a charge to go and pillage the resources of this world and say it doesn't matter because God is going to light the cosmic match at some point anyways and he's going to burn it all up. And that's just not true. God says that this world is good, and he's called us to steward it, and he's called us to take care of it well. And so we are to love the world in that way. We are to love the nature and the resources and the beauty of the world, and we are to steward it well that God has given us in Genesis chapter 1. And so know that when he says that the world is passing away, he's not talking about the physical elements of this world The second thing that he's not talking about in this world language is the sinners out there. Oftentimes when we use the word the world, oftentimes what happens is in our mind is we create a dichotomy between us, the church, the righteous ones, those who are saved, and then the world. We'll say, well, the church is over here, but the world is over there. Those sinners 
over there. And John is not saying that we look at the sinners and we don't love sinners. Because Jesus came into the world and he said, I've come in this, to this world to save sinners. I've come in this world to love sinners. And so if we were to misunderstand and misinterpret what John is saying here, we'd be missing what Jesus has come here to do, and that is to save those who are lost, to heal those that need a physician. And so what John is not talking about here when he talks about the world is he's not talking about the sinners out there. And so he's not talking about the physical world. He's not talking about sinners out there. What he's talking about is something far more intimate and something far more closer to our heart. And that is our desire inside our own heart to sin against God. It is our own evil desires and our own sinful thoughts. That is the world that he is talking about. And he defines this world as the desires of the flesh. He calls it the desires of the eyes, and he calls it the pride of life. And so I'm going to kind of map this out for us this morning, what, what John is doing in these three short verses. And so in verse 15, we have love of the world. And this is seen in the desire of the flesh, eyes, and pride of life. And so this is verse 15, the love of the world. Now what we see in verse 16 is that the love of the world comes from the world. And then in verse 17, we find that this world is passing away. And so what we have here is the love of the world, which is our desires of the flesh, the desires of our eyes, and the pride of life. In verse 17, we find out that this love of the world comes from the world, and that this world is passing away. And this is going to be more helpful here and a little bit later. But what we need to focus on right now is this, this love of the world, he breaks down into desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And you might be thinking, well, what does he mean by desires of the flesh? And again, I think it's better to define things by what it's not than what it is to start with. And so what it's not to start with, this desires of the flesh, is that he's not talking about our bodies. He's not talking about our physical bodies. We hear the word flesh and we think, oh, tangible tangible, physical bodies. That's not what he's talking about. The other thing that he's not talking about is oftentimes when we hear this word desires of the flesh, we think of sexual desire. We think of sexual, sensual desire. But to think of the desires of the flesh as only sexual, sensual desire is to have a too narrow definition of what the desire of the flesh is. And so are you ready to know what the desire of the flesh is? Because this is important. If you're taking notes, this is something to mark down. The desire of the flesh is when we doubt the goodness of God and we have this fear that rises up within us that God is holding out on us, that he's holding out something good for us. And when this doubt of God's goodness and this fear that God is holding out on us rises up within us, it causes us to forsake the identity that God has given us, and we run to other things to find our identity, our fulfillment, 
and our joy in those things than in God. That is the desire of the flesh. The desire of the flesh is to find our identity, our purpose, our joy, our fulfillment, and anything that is but God. And we find this place born, we find this desire of the flesh born in Genesis at the very beginning with Eve. We see Eve in the garden and she's been told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan comes and he tempts her And he says, did God really say? Did God really say not to eat? And in that moment, the seed of doubt, the seed of fear that God is holding out on her begins to take root inside her heart. The desire of the flesh is born. And the desire of the flesh, once it's born, bears out the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And so what happens next to Eve is that she takes the fruit and she looks at it. And she says that the fruit was pleasing to the eyes. And there we have the desire of the eyes, this fruit that represents doubt, that represents that fear is God is holding on to her. It looks good. And not only does it look good, but it moves to the pride of life when she says that it was able to provide wisdom. She's like, man, not only does this fruit look good, but the serpent says that if I eat it, I will have wisdom. I will have knowledge. I will be able to make a name for myself. And I will not need God if God is truly holding out of me. And so she takes it and she eats it. And so the pride of life or this desire of the flesh bears out the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, the idea that we can become something on our own someday. And so we must recognize that this desire of the flesh is anything that we turn to, to find love, to find joy, to find fulfillment that is not God, that is not God. And so this morning we started talking about food. We started talking about food and the futility of food. But for some of us in this room, Food is the desire of the flesh that we have. We have a good day at work, and we come home and we say, I'm going to reward myself. And we go to food. We eat those cookies. We have a bad day at work. We come home and we say, I'm going to reward myself because I've had a bad day at work. And we go to those cookies because we believe that if we eat those cookies, we will be satisfied, that we will be fulfilled. But we all know where those cookies end up. (laughs) They end up in the sewer. They end up in the sewer. It's not only food that we do this. We do do this with relationships. We do this with relationships, with friendships, with dating relationships, even within our own marriages. We try to find our fulfillment, our identity. Oftentimes in marriage, people get married for the sake of hoping that they would find somebody that can love them as much as they need to be loved and fulfill the cavity that's in their own heart to be loved. And then they get, you know, six months into marriage and they're like, you're not who I thought you were at all. You disappoint me. You frustrate me. There's conflict here. And people find out that marriage is work and that marriage was never created to be the place of fulfillment. It was never created to be this place 
where we were to be completely filled up, finding our identity, our joy, and fulfillment. Now, does marriage provide an identity? Yes. Does marriage provide a fulfillment? Yes. Does marriage provide a joy? Yes. But it does not provide the ultimate fulfillment or the ultimate joy. And so oftentimes we turn to relationships and we become severely disappointed. Another place where we turn to the desires of this flesh is that we try and find our identity um, based on a number um, in our banking account. If that number is high, then our perceived happiness is high. Um, If that number is low, then our perceived happiness is really low um, because um, we're depressed. And the reason why we're depressed is because the desires of our eyes look out and it sees everything that we are lacking And it looks out and it says, man, I just wish I could have that, and I wish I could have that. And if I just had one more thing, if I could just buy one more thing, then maybe I would be happy. And the more we buy, the more that number in that bank account goes down. And so that's why when the bank account number is high, we're like, oh, I I could be really happy. There's a lot of potential happiness here because I could go out and buy a lot of things. You see, just recently for Christmas, my wife and I just got um, Amazon Prime. We got Amazon Prime membership. It's awesome. It gets things to you in two days. But I've developed this really bad habit, this really bad habit of like, just like whenever I'm bored, you know, it used to be Facebook, you know, you pull up Facebook, but now whenever I'm bored, I'll like pop up Amazon. And they've got like suggested items for you. So you just like click through that. I'm not looking for anything. I don't know what I want. I just know that I want something. And so I'll go on Amazon. I'll just like click around and be like, is there anything worth buying? Because and then, oh, I didn't even know that I wanted that, but I see it. And now I want it, and so I click purchase, and I know in two days it's going to be here. And, I, you know, I log in multiple times, check the tracking on that thing. Like, where is it at? And there is almost more joy and more fulfillment in following that package to your door and then ripping it open than there is any moments after that. It's like, I've got the thing. Cool. I mean, I might as well just box it up and send it back. <laughs> Because, like, the real anticipation is, like, the buying the thing and anticipating it coming, not actually owning the thing. But this is what we do. This is what we do, right? We try and find our identity and our fulfillment in things that are ultimately passing away. We even do this with our careers, with our jobs. We say, I hope that I can build something I hope that I could be something, that my name could be something, that I could live, that my name could live on beyond just this place and just this time, and that I would be remembered forever. But the reality is, is that when we pass, we're put in the ground, and we're remembered for like a week, and then they hire somebody else, and the world moves on. This life is futile. We'll even do this with good things. Like, I've seen people do this with good things, this pride of life, this desire of the flesh. Like, they will seek education. They'll seek a degree after degree after degree, or they'll buy books and books, and they'll have massive libraries, and they'll say, look at all the knowledge and information that I know. Look at all that I've been able to acquire in my life. But again, those things, too, are passing away, and those things are founded on this pride of life, this look at what I can accomplish, look at what I can achieve. Ultimately, whether it's food, relationships, money, shopping, careers, it's all passing away, 
and none of it really fulfills. Not in the way that we want it to, not in the way that we ever desired it to. And so what we find ourselves in need of this morning is something that can not only quench our thirst and our hunger, but we need something that can destroy it. We need to eat from the bread of life. We need to drink from the living water. And what I find this morning is that woven into our passage, we find this bread of life and we find this living water. And so like I mapped out here, 15, 16, and 17, there's something else going on in verses 15, 16, and 17. In verse 15, we have the love of the Father. And then in verse 16, we find that the love comes from the Father. And then in verse 17, we find that all who do the will of God remain forever. And so over here we have this kind of dichotomy between the love of the world comes from the world and the world is passing away. And over here in verse 15, 16, and 17, we have the love of the Father. And this love comes from the Father. And all who do the will of God or the will of the Father will remain forever. And so it's very interesting how John sets up these two opposites in the same verses. In the verses that first appear to be about a world that is passing away, he weaves in this hope, this hope of love, this hope of love that comes from the Father, and this idea that all who do the will of the Father will remain forever. And so what is this love of the Father? This love of the Father comes in his Son, Jesus Christ. He comes in living flesh and blood, and he comes and he experiences the futileness of this life. He eats some food, and that food ends up in the sewer, just like you and I eat food, and it ends up in the sewer. He's tempted, just like you and I are tempted, but he does not fall into that temptation. He creates friendships with his enemies, and he calls his enemies his friends, and he experiences the betrayal of friendship. And all while throughout his life, Jesus is coming, and he's bringing good news to people. He's coming to a world that is filled with loving the world and living out the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. He comes and he encounters those people. These are the people that Jesus seeks out, the people who are struggling with the love of the world. And he gives them a greater imagination for their life than what they ever could have had. And that's what it is to experience Jesus is that when we experience Jesus, we have someone that comes and that gives us a greater imagination for life than what we ever could have dreamed. Because Jesus does radical things for people of normal, everyday, even sinful, dirty stature. Do you remember the story where he forgives the adulterer that was dragged out before him? It said that she was caught in the act of adultery. She's probably naked. And there... The Pharisees are ready to kill her. They're ready to give her justice. And Jesus instead gives her mercy. And he he tells her, go and sin no more. 
He gives this woman caught in adultery an imagination for life that she never would have had. You've got to imagine as she's drug out there, caught in her adultery, that the imagination for her life is that she's about to die. And Jesus enters her life and gives her an imagination of something far greater, far more bigger than she ever could have dreamed of. He does this with the lepers. They were unclean. They were set aside from the people of regular society. And he goes to them and he makes them clean. He heals their their leprosy. The imagination for these lepers were that they were going to spend the rest of their lives in exile, separated from the love of the community, separated from the love of their family, separated from the love of their friends. And Jesus encounters their life and he gives them imagination and he heals them and he gives them imagination that all of those things, all of those relationships can be restored. And even more so, your relationship with the Father has been restored through me. He does this with a man that is chained by demons. He goes to the man, even without the man's prompting, and he casts out the demons into a herd of pigs, and those pigs go running into the water, and he gives him an imagination and a sense of life that he's never imagined before because all he had known was his chains. All he had known was the rejection of the society around him. And Jesus goes, and he encounters them, and he gives them an incredible imagination for what life could be like. He makes the lame walk. He makes the blind see These things were impossibilities, and Jesus comes and makes them possible. Jesus is constantly encountering people in real, tangible, and physical ways, those people who live in love of the world, and he's transforming them, and he's pointing them towards the love of the Father. And he says that I have come so that you might know the love of the Father. And then he gives of himself in a way that is beyond imagine. He lays down his life for his enemies. And while doing so, he calls them his friends. And as he's dying, he gives mercy instead of judgment. And he says, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus comes as a man of mercy, as a man of grace, as a man of love. And so as we think through this, I want you to think through what has your experience with Jesus been like? Where has he rocked your imagination? Where have you been where you felt the imagination of your life was so narrow and Jesus came in and blew it wide open and says, you are not defined by your desires of the flesh, but you're defined by my love instead. You're defined by this new life that I have come to give. And this definition comes from what I believe is the last verse here in 17. It says this, it says that all who do the will of God will remain forever. And the wording of John here is really convenient. And it's really nice for us because it's this, whoever does the will of God will remain forever. That just feels good. And it is good. But the problem is, is that when we read the will of God, it feels really vague. It feels very vague because a lot of times we find ourselves praying for what does the will of God mean? What is the will of God 
in my life. And so we can live life and we can read this verse in 17 and be like, I think I'm probably somewhere doing the will of God and still find ourselves loving the world, fulfilling ourselves with the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And we'll say, well, maybe, maybe I'm in there. Maybe I'm, I'm doing this vague will of God thing. And I hope that I'm going to remain forever. And also this idea of doing the will of God feels really noble, right? Like I went and I did the will of God. And it, we can like put this patch on ourselves. Sorry, Matt, that's twice I beat my chest. I beat my chest. And so they changed the mic at West for me because I, I touch myself all the time. But <laughs> Matt hates it. I've like bumped the mic twice this morning. So anyways, we do this will of God thing. And we feel like it's really noble, especially when we can say, I'm pretty sure that was in God's will. Like when we like give to the poor or we give to the hungry, we're like, I, I did the will of God. That's, that's really noble. And this, this will of God, the fact that it's vague and the fact that it feels kind of noble, kind of rests and tickles our pride of life a little bit. It says, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done for the kingdom of God. Look at how I can earn my status in God's kingdom, which actually works against God's grace. It actually works against everything that Jesus has come to do. And so a better way that this will of God could be interpreted could be obey. It could be all those who obey God will remain forever. Now, that feels rough because it just got, it went from being really vague to being really specific. Obey. Because obey means that there's some commandments. And if there's some commandments, then that means somebody's telling me what I need to do. In my flesh, I don't like that. I don't like that one bit. But the thing that we forget in our desire of the flesh and in these commands is that these commands that Jesus gave us were a means of grace. We're a means of grace. But in our flesh, we say, whoa, obey, whoa, commands. I thought our God was a God of grace. And the last thing I want to do is have a list of commands or have to obey because our God is gracious. And Jesus even came and spoke against those who followed the commands the best. The last thing we want to do is border on the line of legalism. And I'm right there with you. I do not want us to become a legalistic church. I do not want us to see the commands as a place of legalism, as this list of things to do. Because when we see the commands as a list of things to do, and we see the commands as a thing to fulfill, to find our merit with God, then yes, we've missed it. We've missed the grace of God completely. But I think in hearing the words obey and hearing the words commands, we also miss the fact that when Jesus comes and when Jesus lives and when Jesus calls us to the love of the Father, he also calls us with a level of grace that says, love your enemies, give to the poor, care for the sick and dejected, love your wife, do not commit adultery. These things, these commands that Jesus comes and so graciously gives us are given because the Father is giving us an imagination for what life is supposed to be lived like 
and how it was intended to be from the beginning. These commands that come from Jesus are gracious because it moves us in the direction of life as God has always intended it to be from the beginning. And so as we think about his commands, let us not forget, let us not forget God's ultimate grace. Because the ultimate grace is that we were a people that lived in the flesh. We were the people that could not save ourselves. And of no prompting of our own, Jesus comes to earth and he lives among us and he gives us some commands to live by and he dies on our behalf of no prompting, of no asking of us of any type of uh, merit on our own. Does Jesus do this? He comes and does this freely. But Jesus also says, if you are going to love me and if you are going to know the love of my Father, you must obey my commands. And so we have to start to see the commands of Jesus as a means of grace, as the commands being a place where grace is lived out. And these commands are understood to be gracious, and it's understood that we are to grow in the grace of these commands because Paul even goes to the Corinthians And as he's talking about giving, he tells them this. He tells them, I hope that you would be able to grow in the grace of giving. You see that? The command was to give. And Paul says, I hope that you can grow in this grace of giving. That you would be able to come and see the goodness that giving is. That how God can use your giving, your generosity, to bless others, to feed the hungry, to house the poor to take care of the orphans, and that this is God's grace at work by us following the commands, by living life as it is always meant to be. It's difficult, but we do this in response. We do this in response of God's love. And that's why that moment where Jesus comes in and enters our hearts and enters our lives and intersects our lives and gives us an imagination for something far greater than we ever could imagine is so significant. Because it's in that moment and in the consecutive moments where Jesus is continuing to expand our imagination is where we are going to be motivated to live out the commands just naturally. It's like when you fall in love for the first time. You don't have to be told to go get your girlfriend flowers on Valentine's. You just do it. Because that's what love is. You don't have to be told that if you want to marry her, you've got to go out and buy an engagement ring. You just do it. Because that's what love is. That's what love is going out to do. And this is what our response to Jesus is. And that's what the response to the commands are. These commands are given to us as a grace of life. So that we might know life as it is always meant to be known and lived from the beginning. And that is good news. And that is incredibly good news. But it's difficult. And you might find yourself in here saying, I don't know, Justin, I don't know how I feel about the commands. You might be sitting here thinking, man, this faith actually sounds like it might cost me something. And you might be sitting there thinking, what, what is this faith in Jesus? What is this knowing Jesus going to cost me? And if that's what you're thinking this morning, it is a beautiful confession to have. And it's the way that I have perceived my faith even kind of really until recently, this idea that 
faith is going to cost me something. It's going to cost me my tithe when I show up on Sunday. It's going to cost me my time as I volunteer. It's going to cost me my relational time as I hang out with you guys. There's this idea that there's, just, there's this cost involved with our faith. And the disciples even felt it. So you're not alone. You know, they, <laughs> they hear from Jesus. They're like, uh, Jesus is like, hey, you should leave your mother and your father and they're like, hey, we've, we've done that. We've left our mothers and our fathers, and it's cost us a lot. Like, what are we getting out of this, Jesus? What are we getting out of this? And so it's an incredibly human response to feel like this faith is going to cost us something. And the reason, the reason why it feels like it's going to cost so much is because we believe that there is fulfillment, that there is hope, and that there is joy somewhere else outside a relationship with Jesus Christ. The reason why it feels like this faith costs us so much is because the desire of our flesh tells us that if you just bought one more thing, if you just had one more relationship, if you were able to just get that promotion, then you would feel the fulfillment, the intimacy, the joy that you've been longing for your entire life. And you would not have to give it all up for this faith thing. But that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. Sorry, I lost my place in my notes. And so it's in our pride of life that we trust that we don't need to follow the commandments. It's in the pride of life that we feel like that we can create a name for ourselves. It's here in this place where we say we do not need the commands anymore. But you see, it's through Jesus that we are united. It's through Jesus that we are called a people of God. It's through Jesus where we are called to give up all of those things and where we understand that this life is no longer futile. Because at the end of the day, this life is being flushed down the drain and we are going to be found wanting And so what we find is that this grace and this faith is free. All too often I've heard throughout my life, Jesus died on the cross and he's given you the free gift of life. And I've sat where you're sitting, I'm like, man, it feels like it's going to cost me a lot. That gift doesn't feel free. That gift doesn't feel free at all. But when you realize that everything that you possess or everything that you hope to possess someday is just going down the sewer, and the one thing that remains, that's going to remain forever, is the love of God, the love of the Father, and he's made that accessible through Jesus Christ, then the gift begins to look very free. When you begin to understand that your finances, they're going to be spent. They're going to be spent, folks. You're either going to spend them on yourself, you're going to spend them on the next jacket that you already have five jackets. Like you, You're going to spend it. It's going to be spent. And those things are going to pass away. 
And when you understand that all that you've possessed, all that you have is passing away, then it becomes a lot easier to see coming in and giving as a place of joy because it's already gone. And the beautiful thing is that God takes the money that has been given and he multiplies it and he grows it and he uses it by his grace to bless others so other people might know his grace. If you think about the grace in your life, it's when somebody has come along and they've provided for a need that you weren't able to provide for yourself. And when we follow the commands of loving our neighbor, that command is go and provide for your neighbor in ways that they are unable to provide for themselves. Last week, as we talked about letting love multiply or letting love go forward, last week I read this verse from uh, Jeremiah, and it said, look out for the welfare of your city. Look out for the welfare of your neighbor. And I think that that's what it is to follow the commands, to know Jesus, to love our neighbor. Because we know what proper welfare looks like. We know what proper nutrition looks like. And we know what improper welfare and improper nutrition looks like. And so Jesus says, go and take care of the welfare of your city. And when we follow that command and that grace, then we are able to give grace to our neighbors, and to those around us. This grace and this faith is truly free, and it truly does not cost us anything. And I think this is why the author of Ecclesiastes, he writes 12 chapters about the futility of life. He essentially writes 12 chapters of this thing is ending up in the sewer. This thing is ending up in the sewer. He writes 12 chapters, incredibly depressing book, but he ends it... On this high note, he says, After considering all the things of this world, the end of man, the chief end of man, is to love God and follow his commands. To love God and follow his commands. And I think that's because the author of Ecclesiastes knew that in following the commands of God and in loving God, we were able to live out a grace and to be a grace to our neighbors and to the people around us to our coworkers, that this grace in following the commands multiplies. So if you're like me, a couple we- as a couple weeks ago, this idea of faith not- of not costing something might be a new one. It was a new one for me. It was kind of revolutionary, to be quite honest, this idea that this faith cost me something. I was just in conversation with a friend, and I was just like, man, this really cost me sometimes. And he's like, you know what? You shouldn't think of it costing you something. He's like, the reason why you think it costs you something is because you think that there's happiness somewhere else. I was like, dang. (laughs) (laughs) And what it revealed to me was how much I'm still relying on the desires of my flesh and the desires of my eyes and my pride of life, how much I am believing the lie that God is holding out his goodness for me, that I'm believing the lie that God is holding out on me. When in fact, God has done the exact opposite. God has given us everything. He's given us every good and perfect gift, and he's given us his son on a cross so that we might be forgiven. And so this idea of this faith not costing you something is a new idea. It's okay. This is what... Paul means in Romans by renewing our mind. 
And the beautiful thing is that if you find this teaching difficult this morning, if you find it hard and you're like, man, this, this pride of life, this love of the world, I don't, know, I don't know if I can give that up yet. I don't know if I am convinced that God is truly good and that God is truly not holding on to me. There is good news. There is good news and there's a promise for you. And we read this in Ezekiel. God promises this to those people who find themselves in exile. And the idea of exile is that it's a people who find themselves a long ways away from home. And if you find yourself a long ways away from home this morning, take heart at what Ezekiel has promised to you. He says this, he says, I will give you a new heart and I will give you a new spirit and I will put it within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my commandments and you will be careful to obey my rules and you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all uncleanliness. I think one of the big reasons that keeps us in this place of the love of the world is that we feel a ton of guilt, and we feel a ton of shame, and we've had the world beat us up and spit us out, and we don't feel like we're worthy of accepting the love and the sacrifice of God. But God promises us that he will deliver us from all of our uncleanliness, from all of our guilt, from all of our shame, that he's going to give us a new heart. And so as we continue to read in 1 John, we find that in 1 John we have a father who loves, and we have a father who gives freely, and we have a father who invites all people to walk in his grace of his commands and that we might live life as it's meant to be. So my question this morning to us all is, are we ready to surrender our heart fully to him? Are we ready to give up the fear that God is holding out on us? Are we ready to give up all that we've accomplished? Are we ready to give up the identity that you have fought so hard for? Are you ready to give up all of the guilt and shame and ugliness that is in your life? And are you ready to receive this free gift of God? to receive this new heart with this new identity. And so today we're going to come to the table of Jesus Christ. We're going to take communion and the next song. And as we come to this table, it's here where we're going to partake in the bread of life. The bread of life that satisfies. The bread of life that is lasting forever. The bread of life that is able to conquer our desires to live according to the flesh. Jesus has come and he has conquered sin and death and he's poured out also with his body, his blood, for the forgiveness of sins for all people. And so as we come and as we take communion this morning, let it be a moment. Let it be a moment where you cast aside the desires of the flesh and where you embrace the truth that God has given you everything and let you come and confess that you love the world and you want it to stay. But let it also be the place where you come to understand that it is all heading towards the sewer. And so let us embrace the one thing that is going to live on, the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And after we take, may we worship him, knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we are the people of God. Do you know that we are the people of God? We sang that in a worship song this morning, that we are a child of God, that we are the people of God, and that is good news.
It is good news to be called the people of God. We have been given an identity so that we no longer have to search for it any longer. May we embrace that identity this morning as we worship the God that is going to last forever. And may we embrace him and the internal things that are going to last forever in him. Let us pray this morning. Dear Lord God, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time that we have to come together. And God, I just pray that we would put aside the desires of the flesh. God, that you would come in by your grace and by your might, that you would remove them and that you would give us an imagination far greater than our own for our life, that you would give us the imagination of life as it was meant to be intended from the beginning. God, may you cleanse us from all guilt and shame and remorse that we might have. God, may we embrace the identity that you have given us as sons of you, as people of you. God, may we not fear that you are holding out on us anymore, but may we trust in faith that you have given us all things as you have sacrificed your very flesh and blood in your Son. God, may we know that all good and perfect and everlasting things come from you. God, may we be motivated to live in the grace and life of your commands. God, may we not fear your commands anymore, but God, may we see them as the grace and love that it is, that we might live life to the fullest, as you said you have come to show us how to do. God, cover us with your grace and your mercy and your blood this morning. May we know that we are forgiven people. In your name we pray. Amen.